Tell you what, find me a good Brockian Ultra Cricket podcast and I'll listen to it. <laughs> you're some intergalactic spaceman and now you're you're in San Francisco. And now it's a bomb. It was on display in the bottom of a locked filing cabinet, stuck in a disused lavatory with a sign on the door saying Beware of the Leopard. leopard, leopard, leopard. Welcome to Beware of the Leopard, a podcast with a singular purpose. To deconstruct the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Universe and put it back together in alphabetical order. I'm Mark Stedman, a creature with far longer arms but which is quite incapable of drinking coffee. I'm John Bounds, and I think you ought to know I'm feeling very depressed. I'm John Hickman, and I'm currently spending a year dead for tax reasons. We're still making our way through the Bs, but if there's time, we might travel a little further along the alphabet. But first, there's this. Francis Vogan is where banking happens. Upon where can be found an escort agency for which Lynn Teller was cloned, and where getting the civil service to acknowledge a change of address card is listed by the guide as recreational impossibilities. A kit for unpacking that sentence can be found in the pockets of the seat in front of you. In the credits for the first radio series, we learn that we can see Zaphod in No Sex Please were Amigoids in Gatularians at the Brantis Vogan Star House. Mr. Hickman. What is it about the name that made Douglas use it for so many jokes? So what we're saying here really is it's it's like Beetlejuice, but it's a made-up one. It is a made-up one, isn't it? It is a made-up one. It's a made-up one. It's not a real one. It's not like our moon. No. Okay. No, no, it's not like our moon. It's real. Um, so it's nice that he goes back to things because that makes the world, uh, the, the, the universe feel small whilst at the same time a universe because obviously you would go go back to other places. Um, so I'm not necessarily convinced that it was uh, a particularly funny name or anything like that. I'm not sure that there's a there's a joke encoded in there. That I, is there one that I've missed? I don't think so. I just think I think it's a it's a clever name because it has a sense of importance to it. And whether that's part of the brand or the the Brantis or the Vogan, not Vogon, obviously, but there's there's something in there that feels like it has a sense of import, and maybe that's why he likes it. I don't think it. I, yeah, I don't think it's a funny name. I just think it it it. There's something in it that that Brantis Vogan seems to lend a certain gravitas. I think it certainly works as a name, but uh, I think the um, credit jokes were actually written by Jeffrey Perkins just before transmission. Ah, I, which I found out recently. In um, I wasn't looking up for this, but I found out recently in um, the uh, is it called the Fruit? Uh, one of the many uh, Douglas biographies. That were, mm. we're going on about. So I'm wondering if it. Yes, it sounds. It sounds very plausible. But, all, but uh, those jokes, those sort of post-transmission uh, jokes, yep. are directly satirising Radio 4. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Rather than um, anything else. Is it? But, um, and that, 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 um, that tradition continued with uh, Dirk Maggs, uh, who adapted the uh, series you know, posthumously. And he did, he did the very same kind of thing. You know, if you've been affected by any of the issues, uh, you know, those kinds of continuity announcement type jokes. Do you think the moment that television continuity announcers were allowed to be disparaging or withering about the programmes <laughs> marked the start of the decline of Western civilization? Are they the first step on the road to the shite house we find ourselves in? No, I think it was when they were uh, told that they could write their own jokes. But, but the thing about continuity announcers, I often and wonder, uh, are they the people who are in the continuity IRA? (laughs) (laughs) And now on bombing, it's a bomb. The irony is, John, is the ones who are in the continuity IRA, you, um, you have to blank out their faces. 
and um, get someone else to do the voice. Someone else's voice. <laughs> We're not even allowed to do our own announcements. UK Gold is not a legitimate <laughs> television station. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, that's Brantis Vogan then. Um, now, it's around this time that I usually feel the need to hit somebody and then suddenly run away for no readily apparent reason. Brockian Ultra Cricket is a curious game played in the higher dimensions, the rules of which are long and complex. Rule 6 states that the winning team will be the first team which wins. John B., do you like Brockian Ultra Cricket? I'm not sure because I'm, I don't know enough about it to know if it um, fulfills my uh, rules about what is really a sport or not. I heard you don't like it. You love it. Yeah, well, this the, I mean, this is where I was going. I don't like Brockian Ultra Cricket. I Brockian <laughs> Ultra love it. So, all sports must contain a ball. <laughs> sure. Preferably round. All sports must feature two competing teams of any number of people. But the the thing that makes it a sport, in my uh, opinion, is that you must be able to score at the same time. Mm. So I don't think – I think I struggle with cricket because you've got this whole times where people can't score. And I struggle with things like uh, – squash because you can't because not both people can score at the same time and stuff and i i struggle with um all forms of things that are meant to be sports but you take it in turns and no place no sports where you are judged are really sports that's absolute nonsense i'm no without a ball so i don't really know if i like brockian ultra cricket or not or whether indeed i love it there's probably a ball involved it's just that there's lots and lots of other heavy weaponry and you know and, and artillery and things involved i mean possibly a grenade could be counted as a ball no so i mean if i can speak for cricket for you for a second then john if if, if, if you won't speak for cricket john who will so i totally hear what you're saying john about some of these some of these sports they have now where you're not actually competing against one another, you're competing against yourself. Um, that's why I can't watch the athletics. You don't, you're not prepared to watch people search for the hero inside themselves. Those, those channels are numbered at least 900. <laughs> but so what makes cricket um, a, a, a sport? Um, and the thing that I would like to add, change in your, in your definition is the fact that what one team is doing is affecting what the other team is doing. And there is, uh, there is a psychological and a physical and a skill battle going on. So it's not... That's the crystal maze. Oh, no, crystal maze isn't a sport. <laughs> the crystal maze is not a sport. <laughs> uh, those balls are the wrong shape. They're all crystal Okay, okay Jen, okay, Jen I, I, can go, I can go with you. Cricket gets a, an exception due to its wide uh, history and usage in uh, teaching um, the people of the British Empire to uh, shut up and wear white clothing, even though it was patently unsuitable for the um, conditions they found themselves in. Um, <laughs> but I don't, I don't know. So I, I'd, I'd watch uh, Brocky and Ultra Cricket maybe once in the same way that I'd idly read at least one news article about a man with a beard who fights another man who's from a different sport on the television in the middle of the night and everybody seems to care about some god-awful reason. Yeah, I love Game of Thrones too. <laughs> Tell you what, find me a good Brockian Ultra Cricket podcast and I'll listen to it. <laughs> we talked last week about uh, Bistromathics and and obviously we've talked about the infinite improbability drive and actually the, the Duckworth-Lewis method um, would trump any of those in terms of complexity <laughs> as a way of calculating trajectories and getting through space and time very quickly. And what the Duckworth-Lewis method essentially does is it does allow you to bend time and space because you can take 
um, uh, a, a game that hasn't been finished and you can make it be finished by doing some maths. So a few weeks ago, John Hickman tasked Bounder with reading Small Gods by Terry Pratchett. And we can now cross live to Mr. Bounds with this special report. John. Okay, so that was the first ever Terry Pratchett book I read. Um, it was quite funny in places. It certainly made me laugh once. Um, <laughs> no, I, I'm not. That's not me being disparaging. I, I, I liked it. it um, most books wouldn't make me laugh out loud, um, but uh, I think it was it was good. So basically, it's uh, the story of what happens when a month's mighty god and his last remaining believer. Uh, one of whom is a tortoise. I'm not going to tell you which one. I'm not going to spoil it. I would recommend that other people read it so they could talk to me about it. John Bamsbear reporting on the scene of having read a book. Uh, if you haven't <laughs> read this particular book, you're a fool and I forgive you. But you can correct this easily by going to audibletrial.com slash leopard and signing up for their three 30-day trial. And even if Pratchett isn't your bag, if you can listen to it, chances are Audible has it. I'm about due to renew my subscription as I started using them nearly 10 years ago and I haven't looked back. So, to get some more gods for free and try out their amazing service, go to audibletrial.com slash leopard and let Audible know we sent you. Now, who's up for falling out of a large cup and onto a passing bird? Brontetal is a wasteland blighted by the shoe event horizon, which has resulted in its few remaining inhabitants evolving into birds and vowing never to walk on the ground again. We only learn about this world in the second radio series, but this always seemed a rather well-fleshed-out world to me. So, Mr Hickman, did Adams miss a trick by not committing it to paper? There's a lot of the DNA of this that, that is on paper, isn't there? Do you know where I'm going with this? Well, well why you. don't you elucidate? Yeah, please. Um, uh, so the, the idea of the Shoe Event Horizon, and which is, is kind of key to the story that you just told, that's, 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 in, um, that's in the books. And um, it's in the books uh, on uh, Frog, Frogstar B. So uh, the total perspective vortex has basically uh, is is basically on this shoe event horizon decimated planet. Decimated? No, not decimated. That what's the word I'm looking for? Mark? We use decimated, and I no, usually use it, but it's totally destroyed. Desolate. Yes, desolate. So this um, this this planet that's been undone by the shoe event horizon. Um, bec- is Frogstar B and um, that's where the Total Perspective Vortex is. So you, you do still get the gags about the shoe shop. Um, does anyone want to have a pop at talking us through the shoe event horizon? So I, I might, I'd quite like to do that because I okay. think there's a place that we all know that, uh, that, that almost passed it. Oh, yes. To the shoe event horizon, what happens is first you have a shoe shop and then that's all good. People might go to that shoe shop to get some shoes. But then another shoe shop opens up in the same high street or in the, the same precinct. And then you've got two shoe shops. So it starts to become a good place to go to buy shoes. And then another shoe shop opens and that effects intensifies. And eventually the only visitors to that shopping area are people that want to buy shoes and no other forms of shop can survive. And this, of course, is what happened to Erdington in Birmingham. Which had at one stage a Dulcis, a Clark's, a Freeman Hardy Willis, a Bacon's, um, and uh, probably some other shoe shops that have long since uh, drifted past even my Victoria Wood uh, style seventies brand name memory. Um, <laughs> but this, I mean, this genuinely happened. The only reason uh, when I was a small boy we ever went to Erdington 
was to go and get some shoes. But if you lived in Erdington, uh, for your uh, daily shopping needs, you were, unless you wanted some uh, brogues on toast or whatever, um, <laughs> you were stuffed. And now, let's examine an aphorism. The Sheltonac race of Broop Kidron 13 had a similar phrase to the human phrase, the other man's grass is always greener. But since their planet is somewhat eccentric, botanically speaking, the best they could manage was the other Sheltonac Jupalbury shrub is always a more mauvey shade of pinky russet. And so the expression soon fell into disuse, and the Sheltonacs had little option but to become terribly happy and contented with their lot, much to the surprise of everyone else in the galaxy who had not realised that the best way not to be unhappy is not to have a word for it. Gents, what are some of your favourite axioms? The uh, Sheltonax, of course. Um, they forgot they what they didn't realise in their uh, search for uh, meaning in um, pithy little phrases was that that phrase is actually encouraging you to uh, to be happy with your lot. So uh, they've got that arse about <laughs> phrase. So yeah, no, there's uh, there's there's great ones like. Um, it isn't Christmas until John Peel plays the fall. <laughs> That's one we used to have in the in the in the eighties round our way. Till Noddy says, "Oh, it ain't Christmas till I say, Bob." That's right. In proper real axiom terms, I do like near cast a clout before May is out. Although I don't know what a clout is, why you cast it, and why you shouldn't cast it before the end of May. No, I mean, apart um, from not understanding any of the actual words in it, it's a very likeable phrase. And why shouldn't you wear white after Labour Day? <laughs> oh, I once, when is I once heard Day? that. Labour Day is at the beginning of September. I know this because I went to a, conven- a nerd convention a couple of years ago, which is on Labour Day weekend, and it is an American thing, and thus irrelevant to our interests. This, 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 all, this always bothers me, and I... I I can I can rationalise what it really is, and I and I know it, but it still pisses me off. Don't don't do this after this, mm-hmm. All right? Oh yeah, yeah when it's it an again? annual basis, it's it's really yeah. Don't wear white after Labor Day. Okay, for how long? Until the year yeah, is out. I actually think that genuinely, it's it it was until the new year. But that's not clear. That's just that's just an arbitrary time frame. That's I agree. The, I'm also a big fan of um, watch out. There's a Humphrey about. That might not be an axiom. That might be an old advertising slogan for milk. <laughs> I mean, are these just sayings, John? Are these just sayings? Like, so what? What do we see as being the the, the basis of an axiom? Because an, an axiom has to be some sort of universal truth that you don't have to prove. You can just all kind of like say, "Well, we got that, and we can move on," isn't it? I don't know. I had to look it up, and I still know the words. <laughs> I looked it up and it's just some nonsense about science. <laughs> there's sort of like, there's linguistic terms of phrase and then there, there are, there's, there's maths things, which are kind of fundamental rules, aren't they? Is that right, Mark? Uh, that right? I th- yes, I think so. Uh, I think, yeah, it's, uh, yes. And that's where linguistically it's come from, that it is a universal constant. You can't make an old dog watch new tricks. <laughs> you can't make it an old dog without breaking some eggs. Oh, I love the. You know that thing about not being able to make an omelet without, without, without breaking eggs. some dogs. You know that's attributed to Stalin. Is it really? Uh, yes, and it was apparently his retort about uh, saying, "Oh, hang on, you've sent lots of people to the gulags." He goes, "Oh, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs." And I'm quite interested to know uh, just how much cooking Stalin ever did. <laughs> <laughs> We've been casting our hypothetical Netflix Hitchhiker series, but we haven't yet discussed who will write it. Mr H, last week you posited that Jessica Hines could write Trillion. Could we go for an all-female rewrite? And if not, which men are capable of limbering up to the bar? This is not for a vote, but just for 
a casual conversation. Okay, let's start with um, let's let's start with the all female rewrite, which is a, a uh, an interesting concept. I don't think it, I don't think anyone ever pitches writing teams. No, no, exactly. No, no one actually words, which, does which, that. <laughs> which maybe they mm. should. Um, so, if you think about your your big um, comic writers who are of the lady persuasion, you've got your um, you've got your thirty rock lady. Um, uh, yeah, I can't ever remember her name. Tina Fey. I really like her, Tina Fey. You got your Tina Fey's and, and your Amy Poehler's, haven't you? Mm-hmm. You got your Jessica Hines. What else have you got? You've got um, your uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Oh, of course, yes, 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 yes. She writes. Yes. Oh, she'd have been good as Trillian. Oh, oh, yes, yes, she would. She oh. would. I was going to make a. I was going to make a pitch for a short um, comic Josie Long. I thought she'd make a, a very good job of this sort of thing. Might take it a little bit more political, but I. Uh, she'd have that English yeah. sensibility about her as well. Yes. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I was. That's kind of what I was thinking. She'd be very. Uh, she'd be very, very into the reasons and the relationships between our various alien races, and bring some, uh, possibly some. I don't know about needed, but uh, bring a, a moral dimension to um, to the stories that uh, that we haven't necessarily always had. Would we? attempt to pick a team that was almost similar to the genesis of hitchhikers so would we want a maverick creative and a sort of jobbing everyman type sort of john lloyd character here to come in for the last two episodes and whack it into shape and tell uh tell our main writer uh that they're uh, flying off too far <laughs> into flights of fancy it sounds like a great um bbc4 drama adaptation about this <laughs> from what you just pitched there john that sounds really yeah good. like a like a sort of fall on falls on the hill uh remake for for the hitchhiker's guide uh you could go for someone like emma kennedy she could she could do a john lloyd job yeah. in this situation i'm sure yeah I was going to say my, my problem with this task isn't so much um, limiting it to women, but actually thinking about thinking about writers because we don't necessarily think about writers, and, and often the Jessica Hines, Phoebe Waller Bridge, they are often the on-screen talent. So you think about them as the character first. So I'm I'm not good on on writers. So uh, these ideas you guys are throwing out are just suddenly I'm going. Oh yeah, I know who that is. It's an interesting idea. I can think of some. I can think of some quite um, good uh, sort of female comic novelists. But you're right. I don't think. We really get uh, female sitcom or TV or film writers in the same... Uh, they don't get the same kudos at all, I don't think. Are there really any uh, men that um, you'd like to see um, take charge of a, a Hitchhiker's reboot? Who's the, You two are probably better at this. Um, who are your really good sort of modern comedy screenwriters who do these sort of big Netflix productions? See, the, the problem I have is I think I'm pulling from quite a small well because the only people I can really think of, in because most of great TV in from the UK and I'm sure people, you know, if, if you disagree with me, listener, then, then uh, you know where to find us. But I think most of the more decent British TV is dramatic rather than comedic and Doctor Who has its funny moments and I think there is some there's some good good writing talent there whether it's a Moffat thing or a or a um what's the tall man's name the Mark Gattis whether it's one of those uh, kinds of combinations but again you know that's kind of obvious I'd like to see um Simon Blackwell have a crack at something a little bit bigger budget I don't know if you've been watching back on uh, Channel Four recently, it's, it's really, really good. He's sort of he's written in the he's written for the, like in the thick of it and stuff before. Um, but yeah, I think this is his first solo stuff, and it's genuinely great. It's not 
I think um, if there were slightly fewer jokes in it, it'd be it'd be stretched out to an hour and called a comedy drama. But um, it's at, at a tight half an hour. It's really funny. As you were just talking about um, thick of it, I actually just thought, oh my god, why are we not? Why are we not talking about not just Amanda Iannucci, but why are we not just talking about the whole day to day team? Because actually, in Armando's work in particular. I can, I could, I could hear, I could hear him writing the guide's voice very, very well. If you ever heard the, if you've ever seen the Armando Yunichi programs, that kind of, uh, that his, his, his narrator voice. I'll tell you who my top pick is then. Um, it's Toby Whithouse. If we were gonna, if we were gonna go down the, the the traditional British route of the solo writer, that's you, that's you being human, man, isn't it? That's your being human, man. He's also written for uh, Doctor Who and he's written um, other projects as well. But he, I think, is the bee's nuts and I would very much enjoy. And I think he would really enjoy a project like that and would be fantastic at it. Well, we'll reveal the results of our efforts to cast Trillion next week. But for now, here comes something big and yellow. A bulldozer is a device for knocking things over and smushing them. Mr Hickman, have you ever held up a bypass while having a top laugh with your dad when you should be in school? Mr Mark Stedman, you're setting me up for a fool here. You're you're playing a game with me. What do you want me to talk about? Uh, I mean, I mean, I, I... Mr Mark Stedman, I'm going to I'm going I am going to uh I'm going to take on a little bit of a daughter senior here. I'm going to I'm going to seize the prerogative oh. from you. <laughs> I really like the JCB song. A bulldozer is a device for knocking things over and smushing them. Mr. Stedman, have you ever held up a bypass while having a top laugh with your dad when you should be in school? Is that what I sound like? No, no, that's just that's just my <laughs> that's just my uh, my authoritative voice. <laughs> I hope you don't use that on the students. I really like the JCB song, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. Uh, but I suspect that both of you are probably too cool to like it. Yep. I'm not too cool. Um, I'm possibly a little bit too old. Oh. Uh, this, I don't know. I love, I love a novelty record. And I have actually seen Nisloppy live uh, once in a very shallow pool <laughs> in an old custom ah, yes. I do have to take issue with the categorization of it as a novelty record because uh, and I'm not going to get I'm not going to get Mark on his high horse um but it's in keeping with the rest of the album which um is kind of heartfelt and sincere and kind of um earnest and you know maybe naive and a bit wide-eyed but um songs like you know, it had it, maybe it had a novelty appeal because it was singing about uh, like a physical object that we recognise. But I, I think it would be unfair to categorise it as a novelty song. I'd say that all the other songs on Lieutenant Pigeon's album are very similar to Mouldy Old Doe, uh, <laughs> but that doesn't change. No, I'm uh, I, well because I've been listening to it recently. But um, the uh, I no, okay, uh, I'll go for that. I think maybe I would actually categorise it a little bit, not as much as a, a novelty record, but it's definitely a one-hit wonder in the sense of like uh, White Town. I don't know if you remember that it comes from the very similar oh, era. Yeah, I still love your yes. woman. No, no, it was it was. Did, did you say the same yeah. era? It was. Fifteen years previous. Yeah, it was, what, John? It was yeah. White Town was um, no, it wasn't. Sorry, it was it was about seven or eight. That years is, five. That's, that's definitely an era. No, it was more than five. Right? Okay. It was more than five oh, shut Nis- up. Because Nisloppy was two thousand and five. Oh, okay. And White Town would have been would have been ninety seven at the latest. Yeah. Yeah. 
96, yeah. 97, I, I was looking at unis yeah. when White Town was charting. Yeah. And it's been 20 years since I started uni this week. Uh, but no, yeah, it's uh, one hit wonder, like absolutely, very much so. Um, and, you know, it, it shot to the Christmas charts because it was, I think people did the protest vote thing. Um, oh, that's interesting. What were they, can, can you remember what they were protesting against? It would have been an X Factor. By that, by that, by that point, yeah. Yeah, it would, it's, that's really the, has been the only reason people have done that for the last 10 years. There was a thing where, there was a thing where I grew up and I don't know if this is a thing uh, that happened in, in Birmingham because um, I, I noticed going home now that, that these are disappearing, but there, there used to be a feature of playgrounds when I was a child used to be old pieces of plant that were put in the middle of the playground and then sprayed in primary colours. Most often, rather than being a bulldozer, they were steamrollers. Did you have this? Old steamrollers just put in the middle of the playground. This is the equivalent of uh, those Russian oligarchs burying their diggers at the bottom of the houses because it's not cost-effective to get them out. Essentially, it's not <laughs> cost-effective to get diggers off of uh, our small British arms. Uh, it's too expensive to put them on the ferry. Just leave them to fucking rust in the middle of a playground. No bugger wants it. Just leave it there and spray it gold. Now, let's grab a coffee. In Gretchen Town, New Bethel, is a cafe called Café Lou, above whose smelly room's hot black Desiato used to play his agitar. We've all been on stage for one reason or another, but Mr B, I ask you, what's the weirdest or dingiest place you've ever performed? The dingiest place I've ever performed is a small tiled room underneath a tobacconist combar in the uh, French town of Toulouse in the late 90s, um, where it was... <laughs> That's the Johnnest answer I've ever heard. It was uh, apposite to uh, take one's uh, trousers off and hang them on a hook on the door, purely because the toilet was simply a tiled hole in the floor. But if you're talking about being on stage and people watching you, uh, then I must bring you back to, uh, again, the 90s, actually a few years before that. And I and my band, uh, which consisted of me, a bass player, and a drum machine we called Ringo but couldn't program, uh, we, we were second on the bill at a, uh, a sort of memorial gig uh, and the, to, to a friend, and the memorial gig had been uh, booked in a pub in uh, in, in Birmingham, obviously uh, called the Lindhurst. Don't look for it; it's not there anymore. Um, but uh, so, but we didn't know at the time whether or not the the gig was going to be on until the very day, because the pub had been shut for a couple of weeks after the landlord had his nose shot off in an altercation <laughs> on a on a Saturday night. Um, it was quite dingy. Very few people turned up. In fact, I'm sure there were less people in the audience than there were in the other bands uh, in the function room. <laughs> and it wasn't helped by a member of one of the bands who thought it quite funny to attend to uh, do an orange march through the mainly Catholic bar. Yeah, and, and just before we went on, we actually went out to this before mobile phones. In. We went out to the to the phone in the public bar to try and ring some people to come and watch us. <laughs> when I was just barely turned sixteen, um, we organised a surprise party for someone uh, in uh, a venue underneath a really terrible pub that was underneath a very terrible hotel in Guernsey. Um, and it was a place where basically uh, all sorts of underage parties would happen, but occasionally things that weren't underage would happen as well. Um, like gigs with about 50, 60 capacity max. And um, 
I, for some reason, had been left in charge of logistics, probably because I couldn't play the guitar. Um, and uh, we turned up and uh, we were struggling to get access to the venue so that the bands could sound check. And I went like the like the uh, Spinal Tap manager into the fucking hotel and went ballistic on people. And then suddenly everything was unlocked and... I thought at the time it was because I was such a baller, but I think after the fact, it was like, this child has just shouted and screamed and stumped his feet and we're going to open the club now so he can get in with his guitars. It was so lame. <laughs> but I did, I did think I was like a proper music industry player that day. And now, let's get some sun. California is described by the guide as being like several thousand square miles of American Express junk mail, but without the same sense of moral depth. Plus, the air is, for some reason, yellow. I nearly went this year, but I'm kind of glad I didn't now. Um, Gents, have either of you been or do you have plans to go? I know very little about California. I know they know how to party and I know it's on the West Coast. I know it's on the West Coast. It's such a lovely place. Uh, and it's untouchable, like Elliot Ness. But I know very little else about it, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> Enlighten me. Why should I go there? I'm I'm wondering, like, so California is where you come back to. So where do you go before you go to California? In the sense that rappers always go away and come back. Is that what you're on? Is the- they go away and they come They go away and they come back, yeah. So, so. Ca- California, in, in the guide, that, and the reason it's described, of course, is uh, is that where Wonka the Saiyan lives? I think it yes. is, isn't it? So um, it's meant to be, I would assume, the epicentre of Earth's weird, for Douglas at least. Um, and-, and not good weird, necessarily, because I think he likes weird, but I don't think it was the right kind of weird for him. It's, it's true, isn't it? Because it's, um, I think there's a problem with it. It's hot weird. Um, <laughs> cold weird, you can put your coat on, go inside. Hot weird, yes. you've, hot weird you've got to deal with that shit. You've um, got to endure it. And there's the, um, the it's, at least it isn't uh, one of the, the, the stereotypical and normal things about um, Ameri- uh, Englishmen uh, in the hot bits of America where they're just essentially going on about how no one walks anywhere. Mm. Um, I understand that he's frowned upon to walk anywhere in California. Um, I, I just don't think there's much of a public transport. I think there's a thing called a BART, but I hear people complain about it a lot. Well, it hasn't been funny since about Series 2, has it? I don't get that reference. That's amazing. That's a really good joke. Think about it. Oh, yeah, yeah. You no, thought about it? A, that, yeah, it? yeah. I, I should have just thought a second longer. Eat my shorts, Stedman. Just to do the Bartman. But, uh, no, I've got absolutely no plans to go to California. Unless someone... Uh, the only way I'll ever go to California is possibly, like Mr. Adams, if someone options my novel for a Hollywood feature film. What's really interesting about the um, uh, about the, the, the California, Californication uh, angle here is that... Um, just a little bit later, you you also have the crew of the Enterprise coming to the uh, early to mid eighties California as well, uh, but they're not looking for dolphins; they're looking for whales. So there was there was a whole thing about aquatic mammalia. <laughs> I think she's presenting the news on uh, Channel Five. So yeah, there was this, there was this, there was this big. Um, the, within the, the writerly universe, there was a big concern with going to California uh, and and then dealing with aquatic mammalia. And um, all this led rise to um, 
uh, you know, a lot, a lot of people, like a lot of things that George Takai is doing these days, but the best thing George Takai ever did was, uh, as the enterprise emerged over early mid eighties, San Francisco, he went, San Francisco, hmm. I was born here. <laughs> just like, <laughs> you're some intergalactic spaceman and now you're, you're in San Francisco. It's where someone looks at a mouse and goes, what's this? And tries to talk into oh. it like it's a, yeah, a Siri type device. It's so good. It's so good. And arbitrarily, that's all the show you are entitled to for this week. Mr. Bounds, what will occupy your time until next we meet? I'm going to go and watch Star Trek IV The Voyage Home to find out what the hell you're all going on about. Followed by some boon. Boon. But while you're doing that, John, where can people go to uh, find you and your various things? Um, If you're interested in uh, what I'm doing, please just follow me on Twitter, at Bounder, and you will probably find me hawking my wares. Uh... Mr. Hickman. If you want to find me, um, I'd be interested in you going to Google and Google searching for me and finding people who have who are more famous than me who've got the same name. Okay. And, uh, well, that just about wraps it up for The Leopard. You can tweet or email us your thoughts on California. All the links you'll need are at btlpodcast.com, along with all of our past episodes, links and show notes. Thanks again to Audible for sponsoring this episode. Don't forget to pick up your free audiobook and start your 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash leopard. And we'd very much appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts, a star on Overcast, or any other way that you can show some love and spread the word. We will be back next Thursday, so until then, share and enjoy. the small lizards uh yeah the small um mosaic uh garden ornament lizards (laughs) that are real the mosaic guard no the mosaic lizards are real no they're not the mosaic lizard garden ornaments are real and now my brain is are they on our moon